And uh, let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for another Sunday to gather together with uh, our brothers and sisters who have been adopted into your family. Lord, it's nothing is more of a privilege than to know you and to be a part of the family of God as we together look forward to you gathering us together unto yourself for the marriage supper of the Lamb. And Lord, we pray for the diaspora, the scattered remnant of people around the world who so long for fellowship and have a difficult time finding it. But Lord, may the word of God go out to them and encourage their hearts, cause them to rejoice in your truth and the hope they have through the gospel. And Lord, we pray that this morning we might bring honor to your holy name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, this morning, 2 Corinthians 6, starting with verse 2. 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 2. Well, let me start with verse 1. I'll read a a couple of verses. And working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, at the acceptable time I will listen to you, And on the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Giving no cause for offense in anything in order that the ministry may not be discredited. And then Paul is going to go on to a long litany about, it's basically a defense of his ministry by showing the, the, the things he's been through, the way he conducts himself, and things that happened to him as a defense of his ministry. This defense of the ministry motif has been, is found all through Second Corinthians. It keeps coming back. There's a dispute going on with the Corinthian church. They're holding Paul in low esteem in their minds, and so he has to keep going back to this. But here it talks about the day of salvation. Verse 2, he says, At an acceptable time, the word time there in the Greek is kairos. There are two words that are used for time in the Greek that help us distinguish Paul's emphasis. The other word is chronos, chronos, where we get our term chronological, and kairos. Now, the difference is this, generally. As with all words have ranges of meanings, okay, but I'm going to give you the basic difference. Chronos is quantitative time. Kairos is qualitative time. Okay? In English, the way we would do that would be using probably adjectives or modifying phrases. If we want to just say time, we talk about the movement of the clock or the time of the day or how many hours or weeks or months went past. If we want to say uh, qualitative time, we usually say something like, this is the hour of our <laughs> whatever. This, this is the crucial moment. And this is the, something like that. We use a phrase because we don't have that word kairos in English. Seize the day. We, we, there's a thing from Latin that we use. So at, a, at, the, at the crucial moment, I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, 
Now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. I'll give you the basic meaning. It's not, it's not really difficult to interpret. This is a citation from Isaiah 49.8 out of the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament that was in use at the time when Paul wrote. So this is Isaiah 49.8. Isaiah 49 is a chapter that is messianic. The, we'll be looking at that in a moment. I'll, I'm going to open up Isaiah 49 and show you the messianic promises in Isaiah 49. So Paul's application is this. Now is the crucial moment in which messianic salvation is available. And what that means is any time after Pentecost, this is true, Okay. As after Paul, after the announcement of the, on the day of Pentecost of Messianic salvation, it's always the crucial moment of salvation because Messiah has come on the scene of history. He's made possible for people to escape from God's wrath and to come into a saving relationship with himself and to enter into all of the promises that are given for people who obtain Messianic salvation, including the eschatological promises. So the crucial moment is that we would enter in by faith. And those who enter are the ones who are the recipients of everything that salvation entails, including the forgiveness of sins, including being adopted into the family of God, including being a partaker of all of the end-time promises that are given for the people of God, such as being caught up to meet the Lord in the air when he returns, participating in the marriage supper of the Lamb, and reigning with Christ for a thousand years during the millennium. Now, that's a lot of promises. <laughs> but they're all contingent on someone becoming awakened by by a work of God's grace through the Holy Spirit, to the fact that today is the day of salvation. And there is a day when that salvation will be shut off. It's not going to go on forever. And we don't know how long that is. Yeah, either when we die or when the Lord says, that's it. The last person's repented. It's time for judgment to fall on this earth. Now, what is happening during this time of messianic salvation, this eschatological day of grace that we're already in, okay, there's an already not yet to this, is that citizens are being added to the kingdom of God. This week I'm working, I was working on a chapter in this book I'm writing about the kingdom of God. I noticed that this term kingdom of God, as I did all the research, my, if, you, if you've ever been in my office, I'm just surrounded by piles of books, turned upside down, open to certain pages, because I'm finding quotes. So, so you read like 10 or 12 books, and then six months later you're writing. Go, okay, where did I read that? Where did I read that? And you've got to go back and find it. And so right now I'm writing about the kingdom of God. Every one of these postmodern slash emergent books makes use of the term kingdom of God over and over and over again. Is that right, Eric? They're always talking about we're kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. Now, I wonder why they're always talking about the kingdom, especially being how they don't define what they mean by it. Okay? And 
I read the entire secret message of Jesus by Brian McLaren, and he has the kingdom on almost every page. And you just sort of have to guess what it means by absorbing you know, his ideas gradually as you're reading along, because there's no clean definition. Here's what the kingdom is. Here's what it isn't. And what I absorbed was the kingdom is the social gospel. All right? So I'm just about done with my chapter, other than the last part of the chapter, I'm going to tell what the Bible says about it. Here's the first point. Okay? We've got to decide who's the king. <laughs> that, wouldn't that be a good starting point? <laughs> All right. Yes. I, I think what it's saying here, while the king is in heaven and while we're waiting, this eschatological day is there. And if you look at the emergent, you get something in the book of Judges where there was no king in Israel in those days, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that's exactly what they're, what they're doing. And when it says that in Judges, it's always bad. That's very bad. Yes. And the fact is... Okay, the claim, and I'm going to preach on, by the way, I'm preaching today because Ryan called yesterday sick. So uh, I had a nice 12-hour crash course on a sermon yesterday. (laughs) Pauline saw came in to work a little bit, and I was sitting there. (laughs) I'm thinking. (laughs) I'm sitting there staring off into space trying to think what I was going to preach on. I'm so tired. Anyhow... I have a thing in my sermon about Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. The most quoted messianic prophecy in the New Te- that's quoted in the New Testament, the number one is Psalm 110 and verse 1. Absolutely most quoted. And why did the... He started on the day of Pentecost when Peter quoted it. Paul alludes to it. It's quoted two or three times in Hebrews. All right, Why? Because the church's claim that this day of salvation is available because Christ died and he rose and he ascended and he sits at the right hand of God in power and authority and he is reigning. And he will do so until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. Now, how does that happen? Does it happen through the church taking dominion? No, well, that's not what we teach. Okay, that's dominion theology, that Jesus is stuck in heaven, they say, until we conquer the earth for him. But that's, none, of the early, none of the apostles understood it that way. You don't see Paul talking that way. Eric's sermon uh, last Sunday would say that's crazy, right? Because God's ruling through civil governments. All right, so God's already ruling. He's just doing it through civil governments. Now, the fact is that... Because Jesus has done what he has done, and he is sitting in that place of authority, what is happening during this age, this day of salvation, this kairos time, crucial time, is that citizens are being added to the kingdom. All right? So first of all, Jesus is the king. He's Messiah. He came. He did his work. He died for sins, he rose and ascended, and he now reigns in heaven. According to the testimony of several, almost a dozen verses in the New Testament. Jesus is reigning authoritatively from the right hand of God. Now, he has sent his messengers out in all of the earth to proclaim the terms of entrance into his kingdom. And when we preach the gospel, 
We are proclaiming the terms by which persons can enter into citizenship in the kingdom. All right? Now, the kingdom in this regard is not located at some physical location on earth. Okay, not yet. Not yet. It will be during the millennium. That's what we teach. Now, not everybody agrees with this, but we're right. All right. Yeah, there. See, I said so. All right. Now, why do I think we're right? Because of the data in the New Testament. Uh, the terminology that's commonly used today is absent from the New Testament. In other words, have you ever heard somebody say, please send me money, we need $30 million to buy a piece of land for the kingdom? Have you heard that? Yeah, right? All right, let me tell you something. The kingdom doesn't own land. Yeah, I mean, however you look at it, however you look at it, and I have... Uh, I don't know if you saw the Worldview article I wrote about uh, Rob Bell and holiness. Okay? He says everything is holy, everything is spiritual. And and so my claim is if everything's holy, then nothing's profane. And if nothing's profane and nothing's not holy, then holiness is vacuous. It's a meaningless term. Okay? And and, And his idea that everything is holy is not found either in the Old Testament or the New. Okay? God owns everything as the sovereign ruler of the universe. So however you look at it, um, God himself defines what's holy, and God himself defines the terms of entrance into his kingdom. And so if you want to look at it one way, the whole world lieth in the power of the wicked one. That's 1 John 5. But God is the sovereign ruler over the entire world. So the wicked one is only doing God's bidding in a strange way. Okay? Does that make sense? So the fact that, let's say, okay, we bought a building. We bought this building. It used to be a synagogue. It didn't get added. The buildings don't get added to the kingdom. People do. And I've said this before. The kingdom of God has no zip code. Does that make sense? Okay, so this idea that, that Rob Bell says heaven is coming to earth now or uh, that McLaren says as we go out and do good, the kingdom is, is developing. Okay, so, so in other words, as you do good deeds, God's kingdom is spreading. But as a matter of fact, that's not true. The only reason the kingdom would be spreading in any sense from us doing good deeds is if those good deeds were accompanied with gospel preaching and that the people who saw the good deeds heard the gospel and entered into this day of salvation. And then citizens are added to the kingdom. But just doing good deeds with no gospel doesn't do anything for the kingdom because all this is going to burn up. But they don't believe it. No, no. No, no. No future judgment. No God burning up his own earth. So... so, uh, be very uh, uh, wary of some of the stuff you're hearing because it really doesn't make any sense. Um, and Jesus said, my kingdom's not of this world. Yes. I mean, you could go 
farther in saying, if you, all you do is do good deeds and don't preach the gospel and say that God loves you as you are, don't worry about it, and here's a piece of bread, you're actually doing, making it worse because you're giving them a false sense of security instead of the terms of the gospel, and they're more hardened in their desire yeah. to continue on. Absolutely. The terms of the gospel are what we're fighting for. Bell says, God loves you, here's a toaster. I quote that directly from Velvet Elvis. Well, fine, toast your bread. But how are you going to gain entrance into the kingdom? That's my question. It's all, if I have bread in my uh, pantry and I have enough uh, money to live on, have, is that proof I'm in the kingdom? If I go do good deeds to the, for the poor, is that proof I'm in the kingdom? There's a lot of people that do good deeds to the poor that don't even believe there is such a thing as a kingdom. Right? No, you enter through entering through this day of salvation. And if the people refuse to declare the terms, then all you're doing is trying to make life better but not really do anything for the kingdom. Yes. Okay. Um, before a friend um, in this church recommended I come visit this church, I was going to a place where, and they do, <laughs> they do preach the gospel, they save souls, they have... Uh, they have children's education. They preach the gospel as I know it, the, the word and work of Jesus Christ. Okay. But what's confusing is there's a whole new building program now. I'm not saying this is wrong, but it confused me because there's a whole new building program now where they're uh, accruing funds to buy a whole gob of land up north somewhere and where they're going to call it a kingdom hall. And I'm just saying... That confuses me, yeah. so now I'm glad I'm here learning from the Bible about what well, God says. It's common terminology that we're going to build the kingdom through some, some building of 501c3 that's bigger than it used to be, or building a building, or creating an organization. But the only way the kingdom is advancing, in my, according to my doctrine of the kingdom, is as citizens are being added to it throughout church history. All right? But the kingdom is the rule of the king. And everyone who hasn't uh, confessed with their mouth Jesus as Lord, believed in their heart that God raised him from the dead, and so on, as it says in Romans, is not under the rule of the king. They're rebels. And so, so we, we turn from being rebels to citizens. All right. So now is the day of salvation. So what does that mean for us? Well, that means that as long as God allows this day of messianic salvation to continue on, they can enter. People may repent and believe the gospel, enter the kingdom, come under the reign of Jesus Christ. And then Paul's admonition of verse 1 was for those who have to not receive the grace of God in vain. A couple weeks ago we talked about that. In other words, that that the Christians would live in a way that shows that God's grace is actually operating. Remember, we looked up a passage, 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says, God's grace toward me did not prove vain. I don't believe there's such a thing as vain grace. If we receive it in vain, it's not the fault of grace. It's because we walk away from the means of grace and we don't, pay attention and don't walk by faith. The grace itself is effectual, as Paul said. 
Okay, turn with me, if you have flowers in your Bible, to Isaiah 49. <laughs> For the people listening on the tape, I just borrowed my wife's Bible. <laughs> I have my little bitty one in my briefcase. Isaiah 49. And so this is, this is where Paul is citing this day of salvation. And so I want to show you the context of Messianic salvation. And this, this is actually Hebrew poetry. Listen to verse 1. Listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother he named me. And he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he has concealed me. And he's made me a select arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. Now, the numerical standard has me here capitalized. So the, that means the translators, in their opinion... This, they didn't get that because the Hebrews capitalized. In their opinion, it's messianic. That's what they do. Okay? Verse 3, And he said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will show my glory. But I have said, I have toiled in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely the justice due me is with the Lord, and my reward is with my God. Thou said the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him in order that Israel might be gathered to him. For I'm honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. He says, it is too small a thing for you that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. Now, obviously, this verse is messianic, is it not? I will make you servant of Yahweh a light to the nations so that my salvation will reach the end of the earth. I've said before, this is the great commission in the Old Testament. Okay? Here we have in the Old Testament uh, the promise that God is going to cause salvation to go to the ends of the earth, even to the nations, the goy, because of Messiah. Isn't that a great passage? Wow. And then in that context is where we're going to find the verse that we just cited. Verse 7, Thus saith the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to the despised, to the one abhorred by the nation. Now here we find out more about Messiah, right? So here's the one who's raised up to be the servant of Yahweh to bring salvation to all peoples. But it says here they're going to be, He's going to be abhorred by the nation. Isn't that what happened? More prophecy. To the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes will bow down, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. And here's our verse. Thus saith the Lord, in a favorable time I've answered you. In a day of salvation I helped you. And I will keep you and give you for a covenant of the people to restore the land, to make them inherit the desolate heritages. Now, Paul cited that from the Septuagint, which reads a little differently. Now, this grand plan of messianic salvation prophesied in the Old Testament, promised in Genesis to Eve and to Abraham, promised in Second Samuel to David, and prophesied by Isaiah has come to us upon whom the, the end of the ages have arrived. We, dear ones, are living in the crucial moment of messianic salvation. We are in the day of salvation. And so we have the privilege now that we've entered 
and come under the lordship of the king who sits at the right hand of God. And so he's our king. We have the privilege of spreading this message of salvation. Okay, let me uh, distribute some verses. Uh, Robert, if you could look up Luke 19, 42 to 44, and Sam, Hebrews 3, 12 to 16. Hebrews 3, 12 to 16, and Norma, Hebrews 4 and verse 7. Hebrews cites some of these passages. I love Hebrews so much, if I hadn't already taught it for three years, I'd go back and start over again. I'm always going into Hebrews. Luke 19, did you say? Yeah, Luke 19, I said uh, 42 to 44. Start in verse 41. Now, as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave you they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. There's the Kairos moment again. You did not know the time of your visitation. Messiah came to his own first, right? He first came to his own. Although there's hints in the Gospels that the salvation is going to go to be a light for the nations because he went to forays into Gentile territory, like the gathering in Luke-Acts. But it's not until Acts 10 where this becomes so clear, even to the disciples. But he came to Jerusalem, and he wept over Jerusalem because of her failure to recognize the day of visitation. Now, this day of salvation continues... But Jesus ascended to heaven and he reigns from there. Okay, the next passage was in Hebrews. Hebrews 3, 12, 16. Uh, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you any evil, an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another after, day after day as long as it's still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as when they provoked me. For, for who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all of those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Yeah, the day of provocation, which is a reference to Numbers 14. Now, um, Notice the similarity in Hebrews and in 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians, Paul addresses the covenant community and says, Be sure that you did not receive the grace of God in vain. So there's a warning against apostasy. In Hebrews, the author of Hebrews addresses the covenant community, the house church, and warns them that they don't, follow the uh, pattern of their forefathers because these were Jewish Christians. So he reminded them that their fathers had all received the Lord's salvation by being brought out of Egypt, but they provoked God. 
receive the grace of God in vain. That's a warning. Remember two weeks ago I preached from 1 Corinthians 10? Was it two weeks ago? Yeah. When they came out of Egypt, and Paul took the same story in 1 Corinthians 10 and used it as a warning to the Corinthians. Now, I see two things simultaneously to be true. All right? And they're not a conflict. Don't think there's a conflict here. One thing is true. We receive God's grace, and his grace isn't vain, and he's going to keep us. He's going to keep us safe and secure in our salvation. I believe that's true. The other thing I believe is to be true is that God uses these warnings as part of his way of doing that. And that we should never be um, sitting, resting on our laurels, so to speak, or uh, complacent. We should never be complacent. And say, well, I could never fall from God because I'm such a good Christian. The Bible says to people who might think that, let him who thinks he stands, this is in 1 Corinthians 10, I believe, take heed lest he fall. And you notice also the pattern in Hebrews and in Corinthians is there's a strong rebuke and a warning followed by comfort. Remember in one of the most strong warnings of apostasies in the Bible, Hebrews 6, where he says that if you, if you apostatize, it will be impossible to ever renew you to repentance, and, and you're going to be lost forever. But then he says, I'm persuaded of better things concerning you. So there's comfort. The warning is to the flock, but there's also comfort that God will keep us. Okay, then the passage in Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4, 7. He again fixes a certain day, today saying, through David, after so long a time, just as has been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Okay. Today is the day of salvation. If you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Now, what did that mean? The voice was speaking, warning from heaven through the apostolic teaching. All right? If you hear the gospel preached to you, and you're convicted of your sins by the Holy Spirit. And, and you have this day where you know it's true. That's what happens. If you know it's true, today if you hear his voice, that's that moment, that's that crucial moment when you know that it's true. Don't harden your heart and go back to your life of sin. Take action. Call upon the name of the Lord. I'm going to quote from a guy named Burnett on this, uh, commenting on verse 2 here. Behold, now points to the final phase that salvation history has now entered, ushered in by God's reconciliation of the world and his appointment of preachers of reconciliation, verses 18 through 19 in chapter 5. This is the, gra- this is the grace of God, okay? This offer of reconciliation that Paul has made is the grace of for salvation. The eschatological reality of the now arrived day of salvation is the bedrock for God's twice given appeal through Paul to them. One, that they be reconciled to God, verse 20, and two, that they do not receive the grace of God in vain, verse 1. He continues on and says this The point Paul is making is that as an apostle of Christ, He exercises religious authority over the Corinthians, an authority that cannot by his nature be shared with, for example, members of the church in Corinth, because Paul is uniquely an apostle who speaks authoritatively for God. 
He speaks the actual words of God. He expects, he expects to be heeded. Thus understood, these verses cannot be applied without qualification to others outside the apostolic circle beyond the apostolic age. Such, such persons do not bear the direct authority of Christ as ambassadors the way Paul did. Now, that's a good point. I was just disputing with somebody via email about that this week. We can speak with the same authority that Paul did if and only if we are speaking the words that are derived from what he gave us in the New Testament. In other words, we can authoritatively declare the terms of messianic salvation. Not because we have a direct hotline to God and we're direct recipients of revelation and we have the same, we're apostles like Paul. No, we find it from him, from the scriptures. And, but it is applied just as authoritatively. So I'm agreeing with Burnett. I do not believe there are any authoritative apostles and prophets in the church today other than the biblical ones. And those people who are going around saying, I speak authoritatively for God because God told me something and you have to obey me because I said so, beyond Scripture, I, I say, phooey. <laughs> I don't buy it. Yes. And if we apply that same concept to our own selves, saying, I heard from God and God told me to do this just because we have a feeling in that same way, we become false prophets to ourselves, yep. and that also has no authority in our lives. And even regarding our own direction, our own guidance, we can go to scriptures and look to that and find comfort there in yep. spite of our own thoughts. Yes, yeah, so we published an article to that end. I sent it to a guy, and he, was, he said that, that proved that I don't believe in prayer. <laughs> I, I think, you know what I think? And I think this guy is, probably really loves the Lord. He just... If you sit under bad teaching long enough, you don't, get, you don't get good theology. You know, you just sit under bad teaching, bad teaching, bad teaching, bad teaching, and pretty soon you're so confused you, don't know, you, can't, you can't even think straight. Because the Bible doesn't define prayer as receiving infallible revelation. That's not the biblical definition of prayer. Prayer is us speaking to God and He hears us. What are, there's, there's wonderful promises about prayer. Okay, let's say I take away this idea. I pray I get direct revelations that are infallible, binding, and authoritative, and I have to do whatever comes into my mind after I pray because that's God. Infallible, inerrant God, and I have to go. I don't believe that. I used to believe that, and I about destroyed my family, right? (laughs) Took my wife to probably talk sense into me. Thank you. Well, <laughs> yeah, she didn't, she didn't say that amen. I hear that amen. Well, she finally said, you have to, you're following this course of action because 10 years ago you thought God told you something. That's the exact word she said. Uh, so I finally just said, okay, I'm done with it. And then it took me another 10 years to figure out theologically why I was wrong. Now, what, what promises do we have? Well, doesn't it say that if we pray, he hears us? Right? Doesn't it say that we have access to the throne of grace where we find grace, where we find help in our time of need? Doesn't it say that we receive the Holy Spirit, the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, and that the Spirit intercedes for us in groanings too deep for words? 
So to say that all of those things are nothing unless I'm going to be a recipient of new revelation is an insult to the Holy Spirit. Okay? Now, where are the verses that say that when we pray, we shall become recipients of infallible revelation, just like Paul? There's no, there's no such thing. Now, some people say, well, you're taking something away from me. No, I'm really not. If, if there's a course of action that you would like to take that's within the realm of Christian liberty, you're free to take that. And you're free to act on thoughts that come into your mind that might be from God. As long as it's a matter of Christian liberty and you're not binding anybody, yourself or somebody else, in the name of God. Okay? So I have ideas that come in my mind that I pretty well think God graciously had those ideas get there because the course of action was, was a good one and a reasonable one, and, uh, and I take action. But I'm not bound. So I'm not bound. And it's so free and so liberating. One of you, if you don't mind me saying so, uh, I, I won't name names here, but somebody came into my office the other day and said that based on that teaching, he felt liberty to take some action that he felt like he needed to take. Just, I'm, I'm going to make a decision. I'm going to take action. Now, why is that not dangerous? Because of God's providence. Even the thoughts of my heart are part of God's providential working. God is guarding me and keeping me and you. He's not going to let you fall off the cliff. He's going to surround you and, and hold, your, hold you in his hand. And so you're safe. You're safe. And it's a lot more dangerous being constrained to take a certain course of action because some idea came into your mind that maybe it was God, maybe it wasn't God. Does that make sense? All right. So one more quote from this Burnett. I was just agreeing with Burnett that we don't have, we have apostolic authority in as much as we can speak valid implications and applications of Scripture. But we don't have direct apostolic authority because we're not Paul. Paul's words, therefore, have application beyond the apostle and beyond his time. The sun is not set in this day of salvation. The world remains effectively alienated from God. God's sermon in this and every generation, like Paul the Apostle, will continue to implore people, be reconciled to God. Although our ministries relative to his may be secondary and derivative, so I was just saying, insofar as we faithfully give expression to the apostolic admonition, as legitimated by faithfulness in the face of suffering and with Christ-likeness of character and probity of life, we do speak with real authority and with such greater authority. There is, the, God's Word is absolutely authoritative, and, and it's infallible. What do we mean by infallible? Yeah, inerrant is there's no errors in it, there's several things about God's Word. Let me, there's three, here's three I want to say right here. First of all, it's infallible. The, that means God's Word will do what He sends it to do. Where's the passage that says that? Isaiah, Isaiah 55? Isaiah 55. He says, My Word will not return unto me void, but will accomplish that which I send it to do. So that's the infallible. It's inerrant. It's because it says that all Scripture is God-breathed in Timothy, and God cannot lie. So it's, it's without error. And binding means 
that whatever God's inerrant authoritative word binds us to, to that we're bound, more, as far as the moral law of God. But whatever we're loosed, because God has loosed us, then we're free and we can make our own choices. Yes. And it's also sufficient. Good point. So if it is not in the Word of God or not addressed in the Word of God, it's not critical to us and we have freedom and that's enough. The Word of God is sufficient. We don't need additional revelations uh, from now till when we die. Amen. Okay. Uh, let's go to one more verse. Verse 3. Giving no offense, no cause for offense in anything in order that the ministry be not discredited. Okay, so now Paul, who was sent by Jesus Christ with apostolic authority, is going to tell the story about how he lived. And it was important to Paul that whatever he did did not cause offense for the gospel. Why? Because people's salvation is at stake. We don't want people to be offended because our lives are a major offense and a contradiction to what we've been preaching. That's, and then how often does that happen? How often is it in the news um, where Christians are doing just unbelievable silly things in taking people's money in the name of their own greed and and so on, and it offends people. Yes, Cheryl. One of the things that I've noticed as a believer is that if I claim to be a Christian, people are going to watch not just my... They're not going to just listen to my talk, but they're going to watch my walk. (laughs) And if my walk and my talk aren't matching, they're going to say, if that's Christianity, I don't want it. That's a good reason not to have a Christian bumper sticker on your car. <laughs> okay, I was just—I heard that—I heard that Eric was talking about that in the sermon. <laughs> yeah, you get that right leg sanctified. That's the best part. So, the, the, you know, if you can be a Christian in traffic, then you know you're right up there, ready to graduate into the. Higher order. <laughs> okay, so, but there are, the, here's the reason why this is so important. And I think some of, some of the scholars were pointing this out. It's absolutely true. The gospel is offensive in its own self. It doesn't need us to add any. All right? The idea that the way we must be saved is through a crucified G, um, Jewish Messiah is foolishness to the Greeks and offensive to the Jews. So it's already offensive because it's not, it, it's, it's an offense to our pride. It really is. Why, there, it's not an accident that every world religion teaches work, salvation by works. Every last one, except for Christianity. Sinners. Yeah, who wants to believe we're all sinners? And so our pride to suggest that we are so sinful, so wretched, so helpless, and so hopeless that God had to do it all for us, that Jesus, the actual Son of God, who lived a sinless life, died to avert God's wrath against our sin. The idea that hell exists offends people. 
the idea that the blood of Jesus was necessary offends people. And we can't change any of that. If we do, we sin grievously. Because what good is the day of salvation if we refuse to tell people the terms of salvation? All right? And we water it down and we change it until we don't even have the gospel anymore. So that's all offensive. So we don't want to add to the offense by us being offensive in a needless way in how we treat people and, and how we manage our affairs and how we live and how we, how we raise our families and uh, how the church does its business. All of these things get scrutinized. And we should do things above board in, in, in a way that the ministry cannot be discredited. One of the easiest ways for the ministry to be discredited is with misuse of money. Well, let me show you in the same epistle. Give Diane the mic. <laughs> You're going to read 2 Corinthians 8, 19 to 21. And it doesn't matter if you read with a Bible that has flowers on. Okay. It, it suits you. Okay, 2 Corinthians 8, 19 to 21. <laughs> and not only this, but he has also been appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work which is being administered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our readiness, taking precaution that no one should discredit us in our administration of this generous gift. For we have regard for what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. Yes, now that was about money. Paul was taking up a collection amongst the Gentile churches for the saints in Jerusalem. And he, had, he said, we had someone administer this, so that nothing would be discredited. So the use of money is an easy way for the gospel to be discredited, the misuse of money. And Paul knew that, and he was very careful to make sure that didn't happen. Now, what's going on in the American church today? Did you, actually, Jan was... Did you anybody hear Jan yesterday? I didn't get a chance because I had to do a last-minute sermon. They were talking about the, with the senator who's investigating these people that are accumulating millions and millions of untold wealth from the, from the gifts of people who are well-meaning who want to support the gospel. Okay? And that is the very thing, that, that, that passage that Paul in 2 Corinthians 8, 19 and 21 said should never happen. So now the, the ministry of the gospel is being discredited across America because of some people's greed. They weren't read. And you know what else that shows me? It shows me that either these people aren't saved or they are so immature that they don't even understand Christianity. Why am I saying that? Because if you understand what, what the Christian gospel is, you don't live for this life only, okay? And you don't have to have two mansions and a yacht here and now because we're just passing through. We're pilgrims. I'm not, I'm not criticizing everybody that have made some money, and, uh, and it's, I can't even say it's a sin to own a yacht if that's the world you live in, but it is a sin to take money from poor people to buy yourself a, lot, a, a yacht. In the name of Christ. 
That's what it's sin. Yes. I was just going to say that I find it interesting that the mystics and the people that are promoting mysticism, uh, you have to find God mystically inside your thoughts and, and in your spontaneous uh, impressions. These people can't live in a mystical house or eat a mystical meal. They always, they always need a real dollar bill to pay for it, and they're not ashamed of asking for it. <laughs> That's a good point. Bob, isn't, yes, the, isn't, right. the, isn't the basis of that investigation, though, not the fact that, as Keith would say, it's no sin to be stupid. Stupid people can send money to other people. That, that's not the investigation. the investigation. No, it's about what these people are doing with it. Right. So if, you're, if, they, if they have a private airplane listed under the uh, uh, assets of that particular church, then they need to prove that every time they get in that airplane, it's for church business. That's true. Right. That's true. Well, there, remember that Robert Tilton, the guy that would, would, was always asking for money, yeah, and, and, and they investigated him, and he had, they showed it right on the, down in Miami or somewhere on the uh, Gulf of Mexico, here's one of his parsonages, and here's a huge mansion with a yacht in front of it, and here's another of his parsonages, another huge mansion somewhere else. And, that, and that's the sort of thing that, gets, that brings discredit to the ministry. And not everybody has done that sort of thing who's been well-known. I don't agree with everything that Billy Graham's ever said and done, but I do agree with the way he, he carried about his ministry. He never, he never accumulated a mansion. And I remember that, and that helped me because when I was witnessing to my my uh, unsaved co-workers when I was a Bible college student in 1973 and 74, they had a Billy Graham crusade in 74. Some of you are old enough to be around here to remember the 1974 crusade. I think it was at the University of Minnesota. Wasn't it at the stadium there? Anyhow, in 74. At the, at the state fair. Okay, thank you. Well, these guys are saying Billy Graham is just in it for the money. And I said, what? Yeah, Billy Graham's only in it for the money. And, I, and so they were debating that. And I said, what are you talking about? If there's, a, there's people that have been in it for the money, but there's a guy that's never, uh, he turned his business over to people that know how to run a business. He doesn't accumulate wealth. I said, at the time, back then, uh, Joe DiMaggio was making a lot of money selling uh, Mr. Coffee. Anybody else old enough remember that? I said, Billy Graham could make more money with his name recognition selling Mr. Coffee than what he takes. And he was taking a salary of something like 35000 or something at the time, which maybe is more than a couple of these guys made, but it wasn't like celebrity money, right? So they kept on. But because Billy Graham had not discredited the ministry by scandals, I was able to defend the gospel. And here's what I said. I'm, gonna, I'm telling you guys... Why you don't like Billy Graham? Well, why do you think we don't like Billy Graham? I said, because he's preaching the truth and he's rebuking you for all your sinning and you don't like it. I said that. <laughs> I'm a little Bible college student. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and the funny thing that happened was one of the guys says, um, well, I've been watching the twins lately. <laughs> he totally changed the subject. I didn't hear any more about Billy Graham. Because I think they realized that they just didn't want him to be right because if he was right, they're lost. 
Yeah, and they were and they were convicted. So that's why. But then, but had Graham been caught up in a public money scandal, which he never was in his entire life, I couldn't have I couldn't have defended it the way I, I was. Here's what it says in um, this Burnett's commentary on this passage. This is, by the way, this. Def- Am I on the right page? Yeah, 325. Okay. There's a defensive note here. That's what he says. The defensive note struck here reflects a number of criticisms of Paul by the Corinthians. The most important, the moral, he does not accept. Whether in the realm of vacillation and travel arrangements, 1, 12 through 2, 4, or of craftiness in money-related matters, 4, 2, 7, 2, 12, so on. I remember we just read that. Another area of criticism, so he, those things weren't true, and he just said, no, it's not true. Another area of criticism, apparently, was in regard to inadequacies in gifts of verbal ministry, which Paul does not deny, and he accepts. Okay, so I'm not as eloquent as you would like. The gospel's still true. A third, which we infer from this and other tribulation lists, 4, 7 through 12, 11, 23 through 12, 10, was in relationship to his sufferings and setbacks, which were seen as evidence of his inadequacies in ministry. This too, Paul accepts and indeed perhaps elaborates further as in this and other such lists within the letter. Paul's great concern was that the ministry, the apostolic ministry, should not be discredited as it would be if he was in fact guilty of moral failure, which he denies. All right? He says, yes, I'm not as eloquent as some accept that. Yes, I'm suffering and I've been beaten but I don't think that that is a, to the discredit of the gospel. He was willing to wear his suffering and so on. Now, I got left five minutes to just give a little report about um, San Juan Capistrano and speaking at the Stealing the Mind conference. Um, I got out there Friday night, drove down to find a church to make sure I wouldn't get lost on Saturday, um, so far, I haven't got lost on the California freeways, and boy, do they have freeways. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, when I got there, I met Bill and Susie Perkins, who are the directors of Compass Ministries that put on these conferences, and they told me the story about how they'd been kicked out of a church along with some other people that I'd known, and the reason they had asked me to come in the first place was that when they were being ousted out of a church, one of the persons thrown out of the church was one of the founding members. And, and the reason they were thrown out was because they wanted the gospel preached and the Bible taught. And the pastor didn't want either of those two things to happen. So when they were in the middle of this battle in this, where they lost their church to the secret movement, he said, we found the most help and comfort anywhere was on your website. And it was articles that you wrote that gave us a defense to be able to go to the elders and plead for the gospel. So they thanked me for that, and that's why they had invited me. So I kind of wondered how I got on a list with these people that are far more well-known than me. Uh, so it was great to see them. Oh, I met people, wonderful people, just dozens and dozens, not the least of which were many of the other speakers. I, I, I met and got to really get to know Mike Gendron, and who's Jan's having this fall. He and his wife were there. We were staying in the same hotel. He is delightful. I love that man. And his, he's got a tender heart, but he's just firm about the gospel. And he has a ministry to share the gospel with Catholics. I met others there. Uh, I got a chance to talk with Tim LaHaye privately for an hour. 
and I enjoyed that. His, him and his daughter. Tim and his daughter, and we talked about all sort of things uh, about the church and, and ministry, and he was thinking about a book that ought to be written, that he said, why don't you write it? So <laughs> I'm already working on one. So that was a wonderful time. And other people, other speakers, I, I met a number of people who, Roger Oakland wasn't there, but friends of his were, and he is thought so highly of. And, and I respect Roger Oakland. I just listened to the CD of when he was last on Jan's show. If you haven't heard that, you want to go to the archives. It's great. Roger Oakland is a wonderful, godly man. And I talked to eyewitnesses there who told me how he had summarily thrown out of his office that he had a contract for and mistreated by Christians. In fact, some said that uh, he, this one guy who was one of the speakers said, I was in the business world for many years, and I never saw anybody mistreated as badly as some Christians treat their fellow, fellow brothers. Just in a business contract. But such is the state of the church. Um, I spoke for 45 minutes. Eric, thank you for letting me practice on you. <laughs> I, was, I didn't know if I could do my 45 slides in 45 minutes, so I, I practiced here with Eric. But when I got out there, and there's big auditorium full of people, we hook up my, my laptop and start this presenter mode that has a timer. So you know how many slides? So 45 minutes, 45 slides. Ten, ten minutes, I better be on slide 11, right? It wouldn't work. It was, it was whacking out the video screens. And they couldn't get it to work, couldn't get it to work, couldn't get it to work. It was time's coming to speak. So they had to dumb it down to 800 by 600 and take it off of presenter mode. So I lost my timer. And, but the Lord was with me. I think some of you were praying for me because I'd never lost peace in my heart. I never got nervous. I never got upset, which I was more nervous speaking to Eric. <laughs> that way, yeah, that's foreboding, all right. And the, the message on the eschatology of the emergent church came out as powerful and as clear as you could ever imagine. And it, it just, it, people were stunned, literally stunned. In fact, the number one comment, and I talked to dozens and dozens and dozens of people after the fact, they all stood there and said, we're shocked. And things like, my, my son is getting into this. What am I going to do? How can I save him from it? Um, they, the material that I revealed was literally shocking and stunning in how much air is involved and where it's all going. So I couldn't have been more well-received, literally. If, if I would have had a book on the emergent church already written, I could have sold 500 of them. But I don't. It's not written. <laughs> so, it's Dick's fault. It's not written. No, <laughs> no it's not. <laughs> it's Keith's fault. <laughs> no, it's my fault. Anyhow, I'm, I'm trying to rectify that. So it went great. I met wonderful people. I made a lot of friends in, uh, in the ministry. And thank you for your prayers, and thank you for allowing me to be gone from you. But I heard that you didn't miss a thing. You had a great message from Brother Eric Dalma. So uh, God bless you. We'll see you upstairs at 1030.